The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information on Shiloh Presbyterian Church, please visit our website at shilohopc.org. Last week we talked about um, the Reconstruction Era and and the Gilded Age as um, the country expanded west. Um, The country grew significantly. Um, The church, Presbyterian Church, the mainline church, also growing and proportional to the country. Um, in this lesson, we're going to continue that talking kind of the late uh, 1800s, mostly late 19th century. Um, and we're also going to start shifting a little bit. Uh, this class is supposed to continue until a week or two before Christmas. Um, and we're going to shift more to talking about the history of the OPC, which is started in 1936. Um, versus talking more broadly about all, all the different churches in the 20th century. We'll talk a little bit about the Southern Church still, the formation of the PCA, and some of the other churches that um, are around in the 20th century, but the 20th century topic is going to be more focused about on the history of the OPC um, with some amount of emphasis on, on the, the OPC coming to the South because the OPC starts out of the Northern Presbyterian Church um, in the coming to the south is more of a later addition. Um, in ni- 1878, Charles Hodge dies. He had been a professor at Princeton Seminary from um, 1920 to 1978. For 58 years, he taught at Princeton Seminary. I think that's right, 1920. Um, sorry, 1820. Yeah, thank you. He taught, as we said a few weeks ago, more Presbyterian uh, theological students in that era than any other uh, professor. Um, from in, in the last few years of his life, starting in, in uh, 1873, um, he had a student named Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, or we know as B.B. Warfield, uh, who was known to be one of Hodge's finest students. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about Warfield, because one, he's just a very interesting character, and two, he's important in the life of the church of this era. Um, so Warfield was born in Lexington, Kentucky, 1851. Um, he comes from a very, very prominent family on his mother's side, uh, the Breckenridge family, which he gets as his middle name. Um, if you uh, go on Wikipedia, there's a, there's a Wikipedia page about the Breckenridge family in the United States, going back to B.B. Uh, Warfield's, I don't know, great-great-great-grandfather or something who had, who had immigrated from um, Scotland or Northern, I think Northern Ireland. His great-grandfather, John, was an attorney general for the United States under Thomas Jefferson. Um, His grandfather, Robert Breckenridge, was a leader in the old-school Presbyterian Church when the the church split. Um, He had actually started to kind of shift in a more liberal direction um, before that in the early 1800s and then had um, become a very stalwart uh, confessional Presbyterian. He pastored a, a congregation in Baltimore, and later became president of Danville Theological Seminary, which is in Kentucky, and then um, is now Louisville Theological Seminary, which is a PCUSA seminary. Um, Robert Breckenridge, this is B.B. Warfield's grandfather, two of his sons fought on opposite sides of the Civil War. So this is an example of well, literally brother against brother during the, the Civil War. Um, and you can read, if you want to read about that, you can, you can learn about them on Wikipedia. Those are B.B. Uh, Warfield's uncles. <laughs> Uh, One of his uncles was um, the vice president for James Buchanan, 
uh, who's the president just before Abraham Lincoln. And um, he was the youngest vice president date, which is um, age 36, which is my age, so I don't have a chance to beat him on that. Um, he, was a, he went on to become a Civil War general. Uh, he was one, one of the brothers who fought for the South. And he was Jefferson Davis's fifth and final Secretary of War in 1865. And he was one of the strongest voices who encouraged Jefferson Davis to you know, surrender to the North. B.B. Uh, Warfield also had a brother, another brother, um, at least one brother who was a Presbyterian minister uh, who got the worst name, uh, Ethelbert Dudley Warfield, um, who was a very prominent minister as well, although not known as much. Uh, he wasn't a theologian like B.B. Like Warfield, uh, but he, he was president of multiple, three uh, colleges in, I think, Ohio area, maybe western Pennsylvania. He was a, a professor of history as well as a, as a, a minister in the, in the northern Presbyterian church. Um, so Warfield comes from a family uh, of great stature in the United States, as well as a family of great wealth. Um, his father um, was a, a cattle farmer in Lexington, Kentucky, um, which you might not think about as being such a prominent role, but I, my impression from what I've read is he was, he was a very wealthy farmer, owned a lot of cattle. Um, in the 1880s, he published a book called The Theory and Practice of Cattle Breeding. Um, so he was... Um, you know, prominent in his own right. The Warfield children were, were carefully taught at home. Um, Ethelbert, the, the brother, wrote at one point, youthful objects had little effect in a household where the shorter catechism was ordinarily completed in the sixth year. Uh, so by, by age six or seven, they learned the shorter catechism. Followed at once by the proofs from the scripture and then by the larger catechism, which... Not many people memorize. With an appropriate amount of scripture memorized in the regular course of each Sabbath afternoon. Um, so these children were taught by their parents, probably likely their mother, um, a lot of the, the catechism uh, and even the larger catechism from a young age. Ethelbert also wrote of his brother, B.B. Warfield, uh, his early tastes were strongly scientific. He collected bird's eggs, butterflies and moths and geological specimen, studied the fauna and flora of the neighborhood, read Darwin's newly published books with enthusiasm, uh, and counted Audubon's works on American birds and mammals, his chief treasure. He was, certain, he was so certain that he was to follow a scientific career that he strenu- strenuously objected to studying Greek. Um, so that was B.B. That was Warfield as a young man. Uh, what his family thought, what he thought of himself was he was going to go off and be a scientist of some, some type. He went off to Princeton University as a teenager, um, which is far from Lexington, Lexington Kentucky, um, in, I guess, 18, just after the Civil War, 1860s. Um, he graduated at age 19 with highest honors where he had studied um, science and math. Um, after that, being a, a wealthy young man, he, at age 19, took off and explored Europe for two years, um, which is a pretty nice thing to get to do. Um, while he was in Europe, he surprised his family by deciding that he was going to go into the ministry, uh, which no one expected to occur. Um, he would go home and to Kentucky briefly before starting at Princeton Seminary, and um, for a little, just I think for a matter of months, and he served um, as the livestock editor of the Farmer's Home Journal in Kentucky during that time. So he, he was quite a, a polymath of it in his own right. Um, after seminary at Princeton, where B.B. Warfield studied under Charles Hodge and others, um, he pastored briefly in Dayton, Ohio, and in Baltimore, 
These would have been northern Presbyterian churches. Um, in 1876, he married his wife, Annie, uh, while he was pastoring. Um, again, going on an extended honeymoon to Europe. Uh, also very nice. Um, and while they were there, his wife, Annie, they went out walking, um, and there was some kind of horrendous thunderstorm that occurred, and his wife had s- some sort of traumatic experience that no one knows exactly what happened, but she was so um, troubled after this storm that she was basically homebound for the rest of her life. Um, and he, he cared for her for, for 39 years of marriage. Um, but a- as a result, he, b- he becomes a very prominent uh, professor, but he doesn't um, travel a lot. He doesn't travel for speaking engagements. Um, I think he, he isn't known to have attended General Assembly very much. I mean, he stayed at home to care for his wife. Um, so in 1878, at age 26, he becomes professor of New Testament literature and exegesis at Western Theological Seminary, which um, doesn't exist by that name today, but that is uh, what's now Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, which is also a PCUSA uh, seminary today. In Pittsburgh, um, it changes names after it merges, when the Northern Church merges with the United Presbyterians uh, in 18, um, 1958, they merged their two seminaries in Pittsburgh. Uh, to form Pittsburgh Seminary. Um, that's where um, John Gerstner taught, and R.C. Sproul would have been a student. Um, so at age 26, he's professor there in the seminary, having pastored briefly uh, prior to that. Um, so I said Hodge had died in, in 1878, so that's two years after um, Warfield goes to Pittsburgh, a year, I think, before Hodge dies, Princeton hires his son, Archibald Alexander Hodge, who's named after Archibald Alexander, who precedes Hodge at Princeton Seminary. A.A. Um, a. Hodge um, comes to Princeton in part to assist with his, his father's uh, work as a professor of systematic theology. Um, in um, 1887, so after A.A. A. Hodge had been at Princeton for about 10 years. He dies um, relatively early in his life. Um, and so the chair of, uh, or the professorship of didactic and polemic theology that A.A. A. Hodge and Charles Hodge before him had had at Princeton is open. And B.B. Warfield comes, is, is hired by Princeton Seminary uh, to come replace A.A. Um, a. Hodge, who had replaced his father, B. B., or, um, Charles Hodge. Um, one thing I haven't mentioned about Charles Hodge, but uh, we, we didn't go a lot into his life, but Charles Hodge is probably his biggest uh, impact remaining is his Charles Hodge's systematic theology, which was used at Princeton Seminary for many, many years uh, after he had written that. Um, prior to that, I think Princeton had used Francis Turretin's um, uh, theology in Latin, and then Charles Hodge writes a systematic theology in English, uh, which you can still get today, and, and it's worth, um, it's three volumes, it's worth picking up and reading. Um, so Warfield teaches at um, Princeton from 1887 until he dies in, I think, 1921. Um, he's an ardent defender, probably most known for his work on the, the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture at a time when that was starting to be attacked. Um, Warfield wrote pr- prolifically on uh, the inspiration of Scripture and defends Scripture against uh, the higher criticism that's coming out of Germany during this time and starting to, to have a, a big influence in the United States. Uh, one of Warfield's most uh, known students is J. Gresham Machen. 
um, who will start to talk about uh, either today or, or next week, um, who goes on to, to be one of the founders of the OPC. Did my mic cut off? No, there it is. Um, when Warfield dies in, in 1921, Machen says, Dr., uh, Dr. Warfield's funeral took place yesterday afternoon at First Church of Princeton. It seemed to me that old Princeton, a great institution it was, died when Dr. Warfield was carried out. Um, this is uh, eight years before the formation of Westminster Seminary. So Machen's going to continue to... to Machen is a, then a professor at Princeton Seminary as well, um, but he feels like Princeton Seminary dies with, when Dr. Warfield dies uh, in, in 1921. <coughs> um, part of emphasizing all this is, I, I think it's, there's probably a good case to be made that uh, the OPC wouldn't exist today if it hadn't been for Dr. Warfield and his influence on Machen and others of that generation. Okay, so I want to step back and talk a little bit um, about uh, another character of this era, another professor um, named Charles Briggs. Um, And the events over Charles Briggs end up being one of the uh, events leading to what's called the Presbyterian Controversy or the Presbyterian Conflict, um, which leads to the formation of the OPC in 1936. Um, So Briggs is born in 1841, in New York City. Um, I don't believe he was raised in a, in a Christian home. He studies, he goes south to study at the University of Virginia. Um, I think he starts in 1860 or something. So he, he goes from New York City to the south, just on the brink of the Civil War. Uh, actually, I think 1859, uh, he's down there at the University of Virginia. It's also the alma mater of, of uh, Charles Dabney. Um, in his second year at UVA, he's converted, and he uh, joins a Presbyterian church, uh, probably uh, First Presbyterian Church in Charlottesville. Um, he, he leaves the South uh, as a result of the war. I can't remember if he graduated from UVA or not, um, but the war, I guess, I think 1860, he sees the war coming. He leaves the South and goes back to New York City. Um, he serves briefly in the Union Army, I think only for a matter of months. Uh, his... His uh, troops go down and help defend Washington, D.C. from uh, Confederate troops at the very beginning of the war. Um, And then he's, um, for some reason, relieved from his service um, still in 1861 at the beginning of the war. Um, Briggs, Charles Briggs, goes on to enroll at Union Seminary in New York City. That's a seminary that was started in in the 1836, in this era when so many of the seminaries are started. Princeton is... Uh, Princeton Seminary is 1810 or 12, and then you just have, you know, we, I listed them a few, uh, a few weeks ago, but just a number of seminaries established after that. I did want to mention, if you haven't been here uh, for all the classes, um, all the recordings are online on our sermon audio if you want to uh, catch up on anything here. Um, um, so Charles Briggs goes on to study at Union Seminary, which I don't think was initially formed as a seminary of the Presbyterian Church, but it, it comes under the, uh, the leadership and authority of the Presbyterian Church in the North at some point. Um, in 1874, he, he had been pastoring a northern Presbyterian church in New Jersey, and he is asked to be professor of Hebrew uh, back at Union Seminary, where he had graduated. Um, I guess I'm, I did leave out an important point. He, after Union, he had also gone to Berlin uh, to study, which uh, many um, 
Americans interested in theology at this era, era were going to Germany to study under uh, predominantly Lutheran uh, faculty who were kind of the leading biblical scholarship at the time, but that's also where the higher criticism comes in and uh, a great distrust of Scripture and the authority of Scripture, the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture really starting to originate from Germany at this, this time in the late 1800s. And Briggs is exposed to that, which others are as well who remain Orthodox, including um, Warfield spent some time in Germany, um, Machen spent time in Germany, so it, it doesn't corrupt everyone, but it seems to start to have an influence on Briggs. Um, while he's teaching at Union, uh, Briggs becomes a great advocate of church union, um, both Presbyterian Union and otherwise. Uh, as we've been talking about, um, this is you know, the great tension of Presbyterianism is how, how big is the tent? Um, how, how far do we go in efforts for union? What, what um, theological issues are we willing to uh, potentially compromise on or at least make concessions to others that have, have differing views? Um, and that debate is continuing now. Remember, I think last week, I read a little passage from um, Daryl Hart and John Meather's book where they argue that in this era, at least in the North, that the um, New School vision had really won the day. So the New School was uh, in favor of a a less strict view of the confession, allowing a bigger tent uh, for church unity. And and the New School and Old School in the North had had merged in uh, 1869. Um, so this is 20 years after that. Briggs is advocating for, for Christian um, church union. And he says in 1887 that the great barrier to reunion in Christendom is subscription to elaborate creeds. So going back to an issue that has been an issue from the very beginning of Presbyterianism in the early 1700s in America, uh, what is the p- place of creeds and the place of subscription to the creeds, particularly by the officers of the church? Um, to what degree do they have to agree with the creeds that we have for our church and, and teach those things? 1889, Briggs uh, publishes a book. Um, and w- one neat thing, uh, these days, all these books from the 1800s have pretty much been scanned, and you can go on either archive.org or Google Books, and you can, you can read these books. Um, and, you, and you can find this one. It's called Wither, a th- question mark, a theological question for the times. And I'm going to read again from Hart and Meether on this book. On one hand, he, Charles Briggs, defends the confession, defended the confession from its contemporary supporters. So he, he defends the confession from its supporters. So that's, that's an odd way of saying something, but you'll see what he means. Um, who he believed had dis, um, disordered the spirit of its teaching. American Presbyterianism, he charged, had departed from the Westminster standards and substituted a false orthodoxy in its place. The false teaching, what he labeled orthodoxism, was coming from Princeton Seminary, particularly, principally the Hodge-Warfield formulation of an inerrancy. Um, so Briggs um, thinks he's defending the confession uh, from the defenders of the confession, really, the old schoolers, Hodge and Warfield, the ones who had a very high view of the, the confession, uh, a more strict view of subscription. Um, uh, Briggs says, these guys are wrong. They're being too rigid and they're uh, abusing what the confession was intended to, to do, uh, principally over their doctrine of inerrancy, so teaching the inerrancy of Scripture. Um, and this is a quote from the book. Uh, Briggs says, Orthodoxism assumes to know the truth and is unwilling to learn. 
it is haughty and arrogant. Assuming the divine prerogatives of infallibility and inerrancy, it hates the truth that it is that is unfamiliar to it and prosecutes it to the uttermost. So it hates truth that is unfamiliar. So um, saying that by attempting to teach this doctrine of inerrancy, um, the, the old schoolers are um, kind of forcing truth that the Bible doesn't necessarily say. They're unwilling to deal with any kind of mystery. But orthodoxy, in contrast to orthodoxism, so he's, he's anti-orthodoxism, pro-orthodoxy, supposedly, loves the truth. It is ever anxious to learn. For it knows how greatly the truth of God transcends human knowledge. It is meek, lowly, and reverent. It is full of charity and love. It does not recognize an infallible pope. It does not bow to an infallible theologian. Um, So he says, my side, the orthodox side, we are full of uh, meekness, lowliness, and reverence. But the other side, they think they know everything, and they're trying to force that upon the church. Um, Which, I mean, I think you could, in slightly different words here, similar arguments being made today, and even in some camps of conservative Presbyterianism. <clears throat> Briggs believed, and this is a quote from him, progress in religion, in doctrine, and in life is demanded of our age, of the world more, uh, of the age of the world more than any other age. So progress in religion is now demanded uh, by the world now. Uh, so we have to keep thinking of, of progress in our church. The solution for Briggs was not, uh, you would think, okay, he's defending the confession, so he wants to go back to the confession. Uh, but no, he actually wants to change the confession. He he's becomes a proponent of uh, revision of the confession, which ends up being an enormous topic in the 1890s in the Northern Church. Uh, in 1891, Briggs is promoted to become chair of biblical studies at Union Seminary in New York. Um, this requires him to resubscribe to the Westminster Confession. So the, the professors had to say, I believe the, the teaching of the Westminster Confession or, or something like that. And so he does that. And then immediately after that, he gives his inaugural lecture, which is a common thing when you become a, a seminary professor, you give a, a lecture to the seminary. And his was entitled The Authority of Scripture. Um, and from, from the beginning of that lecture, he says, I shall venture to affirm that as far as I can see, there are errors in the Bible that no one has been able to explain away. And the theory that they are not in the original text is a sheer assumption. Um, so he subscribes to the Westminster Standards and then starts his lecture by saying, I'm going to show you that there are errors in the Bible. I, I wanted to read this and I just didn't have time. Um, there's a, a summary online. Um, it's actually from an old version of the Encyclopedia Britannica of this lecture. Um, it says, uh, it summarizes his, his talk by saying he had taught that um, the reason and the church are both the foundation of divine authority, which apart from the Holy Scripture does savingly enlighten men. That errors may have existed in the original text of the Holy Scripture. That Old Testament predictions have been reversed by history and that the great body of messianic prediction has not and cannot be fulfilled. So the Bible predicts things that, that can't be fulfilled. Uh, that Moses is not the author of the Pentateuch, which is, becomes a common view in this era by the, the higher, higher criticism school. That Isaiah is not the author of the second half of the book that bears his name, also becomes a popular view. 
that the process of redemption extends to the world to come. So that our sanctification and our redemption is not just in this life, but in the next life. Which ultimately means there's sin in uh, heaven, in the new heavens and new earth, as we continue to be sanctified. So you can imagine that that would be a problematic view to uh, many who believe the confession and believe the Bible. Um, 63 presbyteries at this, this time um, immediately send overtures to the General Assembly of the Northern Presbyterian Church asking them to act against Briggs, to um, bring uh, Briggs to trial. Um, the General Assembly's first action that year, which is, uh, what year did I say, 90, 1891, um, is to veto Briggs's appointment from the seminary. So in, in this era the official denominational schools, when they appointed a professor, uh, that had to be approved by the General Assembly because the school ultimately reported to the General Assembly. So they vetoed uh, Briggs's appointment uh, to, to the seminary. Um, that same year, the, the Northern Church, it was meeting in Portland, Oregon. Um, the church had moved all the way to the West Coast, adopted what's been known as the Portland Deliverance, in which they asserted that all ministers of the Northern Church must accept the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture. So 1891, the Northern Church, which again the OPC is going to come out of um, because of liberal, liberalism 30 years la- 40 years later, um, is saying officially as a church, all ministers must believe in inerrancy and uh, infallibility of Scripture. The board at Union Seminary doesn't like being told you can't have Briggs as your new chair of biblical theology. And they respond by... Um, Somehow, I don't know mechanically how this worked, but they uh, renounce the authority of the General Assembly and become an independent seminary um, so that they can um, continue to have Briggs there. Uh, two years later, the Assembly is going to find Briggs guilty of heresy, and he, he's suspended from the ministry as a, a minister of the PCUSA, the Northern Presbyterian Church. Union Seminary still exists in New York City today. Uh, some people may have seen... Um, I, I wanted to make slides for this, and I just didn't have time... Um, four years ago, uh, Union Seminary on their Twitter account um, posted this picture of a bunch of young, young people looking at a, a bunch of plants. And I'm going to try not to laugh as I read this. Today in chapel, we confessed to plants. Together we held our grief, joy, regret, hope, guilt, and sorrow in prayer, offering them to the beings who sustain us, but whose gift we often, too often fail to honor. What do you confess to the plants in your life? So, we have had to apologize to some plants in our house, but not, not in the same way. Yes. Um, so, I mean, that, that is, it, it's, it's almost ridiculously comical, but that is the, the path that, that liberalism and distrust of the Bible, which starts in, in 18... The 1880s um, leads to, um, yeah, it's, it's very sad. What, what's happened to seminaries that in the 1800s were, were good schools where uh, Christ was proclaimed and ministers were trained, uh, they've really gone off the rails. Um, so uh, 1889, um, the, the General Assembly um, removes Briggs from the ministry, at least suspends him from the ministry. He, he leaves the Northern Presbyterian Church 
and uh, in 1899, 10 years later, he's uh, ordained as an Episcopal priest, and he continues teaching at Union Seminary. Um, so he just walks away from everything, which is common in these kind of situations. Despite Briggs' departure, this idea of confessional revision continues um, to gain steam in the Northern Church. In 1900, the General Assembly um, appoints a committee of 50 to study confessional revision and, and to bring proposals for revising the confession. Warfield was asked to serve on this committee, one of the 50, which is a big committee. Um, and Warfield says, It is, a, it is an, an inexpressible grief to me to see the church spending its energies in a vain attempt to lower its testimony to suit the ever-changing sentiment of the world about it, which, which could be said in every generation. Uh, the church is, is spending its energy to, to please the world instead of pleasing the Lord. Uh, the committee just incidentally uh, included a ruling elder from First Presbyterian Church of Indianapolis, um, Benjamin Harrison, who had been president of the United States. Um, so, uh, all, all kinds of people involved. In 1903, so three years after this, the Northern Church adopts two new chapters of the Westminster Confession, one uh, called the Holy Spirit and one called the Love of God and Missions. Um, you can go read those online. Those are still part of the now ever-expanding book of confessions of the Northern Presbyterian Church. Um, they were criticized at the time and continue to be criticizing for, uh, again, softening the confession and making it more open to um, Arminianism. Um, Warfield actually, interestingly, ends up uh, largely supporting these amendments. Uh, you can read, there's an article, I, I was kind of skimming last night, he writes a 40-page article um, kind of defending the amendments and saying they're not as bad as some of the conservatives think. Um, I'll let you be the judge of that. Um, they also... Um, I think most troubling, revised chapter 16 of the Confession, uh, which says that the works of the unregenerate are uh, sinful and cannot please God, and it said, says they are praiseworthy, which is you know, a pretty uh, substantial uh, shift to go from sinful to praiseworthy. There are a couple other small changes, one on uh, taking of oaths, and then uh, it also this is when the Confession loses the statement saying that the Pope is the Antichrist, which um, when the OPC is formed in 1936, um, the OPC decides not to use these two new chapters, but it does keep the changes about removing, saying the Pope is the Antichrist, um, as well as a small change on oaths. There's another uh, thing added to the confession called a declaratory statement, uh, which is probably also one of the more problematic parts, which, again, really tries to um, soften the, the doctrine of election, um, which is um, what a lot of the more progressives of this era had so much trouble with. Um, so you can, you can read all of this online. It was still all available. Uh, and there was lots of ink spilled over it at the time. Um, but um, this opens the door, and this is one of the arguments that this... Um, is Arminian leaning, is this opens the door for the Northern Presbyterian Church, the PCUSA, to merge in 1906 with the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. Remember, the Cumberland Presbyterian Church is formed in Kentucky in, I think, 1805. Uh, over the revivals going on in Kentucky, um, they, they don't like the requirements for education of ministers. Um, they're, they're very revivalistic. 
and then they pretty quickly also become Arminian. So that you have this Arminian Presbyterian church throughout the 1800s. Uh, that in, in 1906, the majority of that church is received back into the Peace USA. Um, and many would argue that is that door is opened by these changes to the confession, which soften the Calvinism of the confession and make it more palatable to the Arminian Cumberland Presbyterians. Um, not all the Cumberland Presbyterians do join, um, uh, and, and you still have a Cumberland Presbyterian, actually two Cumberland Presbyterian churches today, denominations. Um, another thing that happened leading up to that was in 1885, the Cumberland Presbyterians had joined the Presbyterian Alliance, which is this kind of pan-Presbyterian ecumenical organization uh, that we talked about, uh, I think, two weeks ago, uh, which, which Charles Dabney in the South um, had, had so much concern over, saying this is going to lead to um, softening our convictions and it's going to push beyond just Presbyterian reunion and Presbyterian ecu- ecumenicity and, and mean Presbyterians are trying to, um, you know, unite with Methodists, Episcopals, Baptists, other groups. Um, and I think he, sorry, I said Charles Dabney, Robert Dabney, um, I think his, his concerns start to be validated as the Presbyterians receive Arminian Presbyterians into their body. Uh, Warfield, even though he um, favored the changes to the um, confession, he is a very vocal critic of this union with the Cumberland Presbyterians. Um, Matthew said, I, uh, I haven't validated this, but I'm sure it's right, um, despite Matthew being wrong about the church in Brazil, uh, that the Cumberland Presbyterian Church is actually how the PCUSA actually gets f- its first female ministers because uh, the Cumberland Presbyterians had already been ordaining women at that time. Um, okay, so that whole event, uh, Briggs leading up to revision of the confession, um, I think is most important to us because um, that is one of the first major events, and it's it's, it's all in a continuum, but one of the first major events of uh, conflict over the nature of Scripture. Do we believe that Scripture is infallible and inerrant as a church? And also of the, the place of the confession um, that is really going to um, explode, particularly after World War, World War I in, in the 1920s. Uh, and that's going to lead into the formation of the OPC. So, Keep that in mind as we um, continue. Next week, we'll, we'll talk more about how that conflict develops. <clears throat> There's one other thing going on in this same era, um, which is related but not identical, uh, and that's the development of three um, movements that are themselves uh, related but not over not not identical. That's dispensationalism, premillennialism, and fundamentalism. Uh, and these are important because these become issues in the early days of the OPC, important to us uh, in the OPC. Um, these are issues that the OPC is formed in 1936. In 1938, the OPC has its, a split, just two, two years, less than two years after its founding. Uh, the OPC splits over the issue of um, can OPC ministers be dispensational or, or premillennial, uh, and uh, as well as kind of um, fundamentalism adjacent issue of um, are we going to allow the consumption of alcohol 
which fundamentalists tend to be opposed to. Uh, so the OPC splits and the Bible Presbyterian churches is formed in, in um, 1938. So I wanted to give a little bit of the, the background of this. This is, this is a topic I had not really delved much into. Um, so I wanted to, to try to share a little bit so you understand where this comes from. Um, in, eight, in the 1830s, John Nelson Darby, an English minister, becomes the founder of modern dispensationalism um, and the, the Plymouth Brethren Church Movement, uh, which uh, Moppy is not here. Moppy grew up Plymouth Brethren, as did Dr. Carrick, who used to preach for us. So just random asides there. Um, Darby divides the history of, of Scripture and of man into these multiple dispensations. Um, and if you've read the Westminster Confession, you know the Westminster Confession itself talks about dispensations. It says there are, um, there are not two different covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. Um, so this idea, you know, the term itself is in our confession, um, but that, that very statement is kind of arguing against what the dispensationalists uh, think, which is um, they, they don't have this unifying uh, doctrine of covenant that, that controls history where the confession teaches that there's a covenant of, of life made with Adam or a covenant of works and there's a covenant of grace that from um, even from the, the fall through now we are under the covenant of grace. Instead the dispensationalists divide history into these different dispensations where God deals with um, people differently. Um so the confession will say the covenant of grace was differently administered in the time of the law and the time of the gospel. Um, so Old Testament and New Testament and beyond differently administered, but there is one covenant. So we have covenant theology. This covenant is um, the overarching theme of history, really. And, and the dispensationalists disagree with that. Um, the early dispensationalists draw a really hard distinction between Israel and the church. Um, they see the operation of salvation as different in the, the age of Israel and the age now of the church and not unified under a covenant of grace. Uh, some of these um, more classic dispensationalists call the church age a parenthesis in God's dealing with Israel. So um, really the major theme uh, of, of God's work is his promises to Israel and Israel doesn't obey them and the promises aren't fulfilled. And so there's this uh, parenthesis, the church age, but God will return to his uh, work with Israel, um, which is where you get a lot of you know, pro-Israel um, political things and thinking God will reestablish this nation of Israel that will follow him I- at the end times. Um, most dis- dispensationalists were and are also premillennialists, so believing that Christ will return prior to establishing a thousand-year reign uh, on the earth. Um, a view that, at least in my childhood, was really popularized in the Left Behind series. Um, Presbyterians prior to this era tended to be some variety of post-millennialists uh, believing that Christ would return after a thousand-year reign on earth. Um, whether or not they believe that to be a, a literal thousand-year uh, reign is, is a debated topic, but that Christ's return is at the end of uh, this present uh, earth. Presbyterians today tend to be all millennials of some variety, which is um, 
a similar view, usually a less literal view of, of the thousand-year reign of Christ and differing largely in kind of how um, triumphant the church is in this, this age. Um, dispensationalism, despite what the confession says, as well as premillennialism, began to take hold in the Presbyterian church, uh, especially among those who resisted liberalism, uh, in part because the dispensationalists were very strongly committed to the inerrancy of Scripture. You see you have these liberals um, like Charles Briggs uh, who are, are questioning Scripture, and then you see these dispensationalists who have a high view of Scripture. Uh, even Presbyterians were, were attracted in that direction. Uh, you have James Hall Brooks, He was born in 1830. He was a Presbyterian minister and a premillennial dispensationalist. He pastors in Ohio and St. Louis for 43 years. Um, He believed that during the millennium, Israel will see the fulfillment of its covenants that were unconditionally promised in the Old Testament. So the the promises to the Israelites are are not to um, promises to God's people, which includes the church, but to this God dealing with the Israelites totally separately of of believers in in the new covenant. Uh, Warfield actually really liked um, James Hall Brooks. Uh, large in figure, commanding in carriage, fluent and forceful in speech, fired with intense convictions, infused with emotion, whether in the pulpit or on the platform, his oratory, but um, not only caught the attention, but dominated the feelings and controlled the convictions of his audience. He had the voice of a lion and the vehemence of Elijah. His was no anemic Christianity. Brooks goes on to form this conference called the Niagara Bible Conference. It initially meets in Ontario near Niagara Falls, um, which meets for uh, 20 years every year in the the end of the the 1800s. And that really helps spread dispensationalism across America. Um, In the 1880s, uh, he mentors a a young um, new minister in St. Louis um, named C.I. Schofield, who We'll go on to, to publish the, the Schofield Reference Bible. Um, Schofield, actually, I, I'd never read this, but I was reading about it this morning, has a very cloudy past. As a, he's a Confederate deserter, and he, he ends up being a corrupt politician who's kind of run out of town, an alcoholic who his wife leaves him. But he's converted in the 1870s, uh, starts working with uh, Dwight Moody. And then from Brooks, this Presbyterian, he learns dispensationalism. And, and Schofield, will, he'll be a Congregationalist for a little bit, but he ends up joining the Southern Presbyterian Church. In, in 1909, so 30 years later, he publishes the Schofield Reference Bible, which teaches seven dispensations of God's working uh, with man, um, which ends up having an enormous influence in, in American evangelicalism. Uh, and you still have uh, you know, tons and tons of dispensationalism, in, particularly in Baptist churches, but other churches today. Um, Lacey Andrews, our regional home missionary, grew up in a southern Presbyterian church in... Um, East Texas, where they had Schofield reference Bibles uh, used in their church. I can't remember if they were pew Bibles or, or what, but uh, he grew up around this dispensationalism in a Presbyterian church. Um, I want to talk a little bit about kind of fundamentalism movement as well, uh, but I think I'm going to have to hold off uh, on that because we're out of time. Uh, today, but the fundamentalism movement is again tied up here with uh, those who are um, rejecting the influences of modernity uh, and holding to a high view of scripture. Um, and, and many of the fundamentalists are dispensationalists and premillennialists, um, although not not all of them. Um, but uh, you know, unlike Briggs, 
You know, Briggs thinks progress is of the essence of religion. Um, the fundamentalists are saying, no, we need to, to stand firm and hold fast to the truths uh, that, that uh, the church has believed through all generations. So we'll talk a little bit more about the fundamental, fundamentalist movement next week as we um, start to talk about the pres- Presbyterian controversy.